system science had a mascot, it might be the murmuration. These enormous flocks of starlings darken skies across the northern hemisphere, performing intricate airborne maneuvers with no central leadership or plan. Each bird behaves according to a simple set of rules about how closely it tracks neighbors, resulting in one of the world's most awesome natural spectacles. This notion of self-organizing flocks of relatively simple agents has inspired a new paradigm of engineering, building simple, flexible, adaptive swarms that stand to revolutionize the way we practice medicine, map ecosystems, and extend our public infrastructure. We're living at the dawn of the age of the robot swarm, and these metal murmurations help us create communications networks, fight cancer, and evolve to solve new problems for an age that challenges the isolated strategies of individuals. Welcome to Complexity, official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists, developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is Sabine Howard, assistant professor in robotics at the University of Bristol and president and co-founder of RoboHub.org, a nonprofit dedicated to connecting the robotics community to the world. In this episode, we talk about how swarms have changed the way we think about intelligence and how we build technologies for everything from drug delivery to home construction. Well, Sabine, thanks for joining us. Yeah, sure. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. So you work on swarm robotics. And let's just get this right out of the way. You know, a lot, a lot of people, their introduction to swarm robotics was like matrix revolutions. They're not thinking about it typically in terms or like Terminator Genesis, you know. They're not thinking about it in terms of medical applications, construction applications. So I'm really curious to hear from you, what are the most exciting deployments of swarm intelligence in robotics and, and elsewhere that people are working on right now. And then we can work backwards from that. I'm excited that swarms, I think, are ready to get out of the lab. Uh, so for the past 10, 20 years, we've build, been building up towards swarm robotics. Uh, so we've been looking at nature and what algorithms nature uses to self-organize systems, trying to implement them on robots. And typically we've been doing that in small numbers. And now the push is to understanding how we can make these things work in larger numbers. And we're starting to have these capabilities because the hardware is there and our ability to discover new swarm algorithms is there as well. And so a little bit like the area of machine learning has taken off because we have this conjunction of better algorithms and better hardware, I think we're going to see the same thing in robotics. 
Uh, so I'm excited about the, the prospects because the reality is we don't yet see many of these swarm systems in the real world. So if, for me, it's sort of the cusp of bringing, bringing together these huge numbers of hardware platforms that we can now make, uh, the ability to design better swarm algorithms, and also the, the, the new applications. So thinking of swarming more broadly than just swarm robotics, but can we start engineering swarms in biomedical applications? Should we be looking at how we engineer the collective behaviors uh, of things like nanoparticles for cancer treatment? Should we be thinking of cancer cells, actually, as swarm systems that we can understand, but also maybe engineer so that they do things that are less harm harmful? So, you know, once you start thinking of systems as swarms, then you see swarms everywhere. Uh, and, and that's what gets me excited. Mm. So, uh, in your community lecture last night, you talked about uh, that you're consulting with a company that's looking at uh, construction swarms, And uh, that's that's a good that's a really interesting example. And then on the other end of the the scale, you talked about nanomedical swarms. So I'd I'd love to just set the stage by hearing a little bit about the how uh, thinking about swarms differs at the macro and the and the micro and the nano scales, and how the research from those different scales informs the research going on at other scales. I love thinking of swarms uh, across scales. I guess you noticed that yesterday. And there's really different ways of approaching it. I think when you have small numbers of more capable robots, then you give them more intelligence on the individual level. So in the case of the swarm construction, this is a startup called Assembler, and they're trying to make robots that can navigate bricks and deposit bricks as they go along. And so these individual robots will need to have more capabilities, you know, than, than, than some of the nanoparticle work that I'm doing. And so how do you design the algorithm so that they can understand the environment on an individual level, but also coordinate with other robots uh, so that the system as a whole, in this case, can go and build a brick wall? Um, at the biomedical side uh, or the nano side, what we're seeing is systems that work in tremendous numbers, so in the 10 to the power 13. Uh, and because of their size, these systems are, are inherently limited in what the individuals can do. And so there we need an entirely different type of algorithm to the ones that we were thinking of when we were designing robotic systems that were more capable individually and maybe worked in the 50 to the 100 scale. Uh, and when we're looking at the nanobiomedical scale, it's really all about reaction diffusion. So things that move in very simple ways, just react to their local uh, local environment, maybe by emitting a signal uh, that others can react to. And using those building basic building blocks are actually quite similar to the, the building blocks that, that we use in our cellular systems to develop these fully functional organisms, which are ourselves. Uh, so I think it's really fascinating how you can still get these beautiful complex emergent behaviors uh, with very minimal systems at the individual level, but work in huge numbers. I'm also finding that as we think across these scales, actually designing some of the algorithms to make nanoparticles work together for cancer treatment made us realize that maybe we should design robot swarms a little bit better that could also work in huge numbers, but that will require the individual robots to have limited capabilities, a little bit like those nanoparticles, simply because we won't build huge swarms of robots Uh, unless these individual agents are cheap, and if they're cheap, they're noisy, and they have limited capabilities. So we're kind of learning across these different scales lessons that I think can be applied. You know, when I was talking to David Krakauer for the first episode in this series, we were talking about this sort of spectrum of scientific approaches. And on one end of the spectrum, you have like fluid dynamics. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you're modeling 
in depth every agent in a system. You know, this this movement from the extreme granularity to uh, sort of evaluating things in aggregate. And it seems as though those two different kinds of science are the two poles of this, this scale of approaches that you're talking about. So here's an example. We have a new European project called Evonano, and it's about using AI to design nanoparticles for cancer treatment. And there we fundamentally have different scales. For example, we can simulate the growth of a tumor, and that's an agent-based model. And then we need to model those 10 to the power 13 nanoparticles and where they distribute throughout that tumor to make sure that they're impacting all the cancer cells. And there we're looking at just a tiny slice of this agent-based model tumor where we then run a stochastic model because we can't can't play that number game with the agent-based model uh, when looking at the nanoparticles. So it's it's really fun because we're having to bridge together all these different types of simulation to answer these concrete questions of how you engineer the collective behavior in this case of nanoparticles. That being said, I think there is a toolbox that does generalize across these scales. So when we engineer swarms, there's really two different things that we do. One is either we use bioinspiration, you could imagine using that across the scales from the nano scale to the more macro scale uh, when we deploy our robots. And the other is using uh, tools like machine learning to automatically discover the rules for your agents that give you a desired collective behavior. So in the case of the nanoparticles, it's automatically generating the nanoparticle design that gives you the right distribution in the tumor. In the case of the more macro scale capable robots, it's automatically engineering or automatically discovering using, in our case, artificial evolution, the behavior of individual robots that are doing, for example, a foraging task, uh, maybe in the 20s rather than the 10 to the power 13. But that toolbox is the same. So I was really impressed by your discussion about artificial evolution last night. And in this case, the swarm of robots, each running its own evolutionary algorithm and then swapping information with each other. And so there's there seems like there's two kinds of learning going on in that system, right? There's because the swarm, uh, Jess Flack has talked about this a little bit in terms of collective computation, where each agent is gathering and then aggregating information in sort of two different steps. So am I understanding this right, that like this system where you're, you're training robots to collaborate on relocating a Frisbee from one end of a, a little arena to the next. There's, there's really two different kinds of learning going on there, or learning it in, in two different scales. And so I'm, I'm curious with that, and then also with this notion of crowdsourcing design for nanoparticles, that you know the, the particles are too small to contain their own intelligence, but reflect a distributed intelligence of agents collaborating on their design. And there's different ways of thinking about intelligence in these systems and the way that those intelligence, those types of intelligence are distributed. So I'm, I'm curious to like take a step back with you and look at this more at the, the meta and ask like, what, what do you think about individual and collective intelligence being a swarm robotics engineer? And like, how does, how has that work shaped your thoughts on this and how did how did your your own sort of evolving thoughts on this shape the way that you kick a little frisbee around? So I, a, I tend to think of swarms as a system mm-hmm. and the intelligence is is endowed on the system as a whole, not on particular individuals. And so if you think of a level of intelligence that you want for your swarm, well if you have a huge number of agents, individually they don't need to be that intelligent to get the system level swarm intelligence that you're looking for. 
If on the other end of the spectrum, you have those 20 more capable robots, well, fewer numbers, maybe individually more capable, but yet the system as a whole is what I ultimately care about. And so that means that very often when we're doing the automatic optimization, for example, with the smaller swarm, what we're setting is a swarm level fitness. We want the swarm as a whole to be able to do something, for example, pushing a Frisbee. This work is really new uh, with Alan, Alan Winfield, Matthew Studley, and Simon Jones in that we're evolving uh, the behaviors directly on board the robot hardware. So these robots have GPUs, which give them enough processing power to run the artificial evolution algorithms directly on board. And so that is actually challenging because what we used to do is we would have a computer external to the swarm, run evolutionary algorithms. During my PhD, this took weeks to actually do. And then we put the best behavior on the swarm And this suffers from a reality gap because very often you put it on the swarm and it doesn't do what you thought it would do based on the simulations because the real world is complicated. And so you need to design a different type of, of evolutionary algorithm if you're going to run these algorithms directly on board individual agents in a swarm. First of all, because there's no godly view of that system. So that swarm level intelligence that I'm trying to optimize Actually, the individuals don't see that because they're only looking from their local perspective. And so they need to give a score to the rules that they're evolving based on what they see locally is a good proxy for a swarm level, uh, a system level swarm uh, intelligence. So that's one challenge. And then the things that they evolve, they need to figure out how to share amongst their peers uh, so that good solutions are propagated. So it's called an island model and how these things are are. Are evolved, and it's just really interesting to see um, see it work. Actually, so in just 15 minutes, as opposed to the two weeks before, we get a swarm going from not knowing how to push this frisbee to something that can oper- operate as a as a collective uh, in a swarm sense. Um, but the, the way I think of these across scales is really looking at the system level and then trying to figure out how you design these rules so that every individual can contribute to this swarm level fitness. So how does this differ from the way that people are talking about training fleets of autonomous vehicles, for example? Like, are they is it a similar or perhaps how do you see this differing from the way that we as individuals are constantly evolving our models of the world, sharing those models with each other and refining those models? Because one of the robot swarms you talked about last night actually included a sort of peer sensing opinion algorithm where they were checking in with each other. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of that. Well, if they are going to do onboard evolution, they need to have a good model of their world so that they come up with solutions that are actually going to work in their world. Um, So part of evolving these behaviors directly on the, the robot itself is so that you could imagine putting them in the wild and then building up the own model of the world that makes sense uh, because they're there and they can measure it and they can, they can do something in it and see what the effect is. And so in theory, they could improve their own model of the world, use that to evolve a better behavior, and then deploy that directly uh, on the go as, as they do that. So it is important for these robots sometimes, at least the more capable ones, to have a good model of their world. Uh, I think there's also ways in which we can develop good models of the world by sharing information. So the decision-making algorithm that you're referring to allows robots in that case with more limited capabilities, but because there's many of them sampling the environment for, for example, good quality sites or bad quality sites or good quality decisions, bad quality decisions, they as a collective 
can come to a model. It's not really a model of the world, but they can come to a decision about the world that's just based on all these different information points that they're able to sample. Uh, and in that case, they're very simple rule sets. Uh, so it's not about creating a complex model of the world, and yet the properties that emerge make you believe that they have a good model, uh, a good model of the world, but it's just aggregation of useful information in space and time. Did you come into this research with these ideas and this sort of way of seeing the world? Like you talk about, you know, when you, when you study swarms, you see them everywhere. Did you get into this because you were fascinated by that sort of system level intelligence or how, you know, what, what brought you into engineering robot swarms in the first place? I was lucky uh, to take a course by Dario Floriano. He taught bio-inspired artificial intelligence when I was a, a master's student. And actually, I now teach bio-inspired artificial intelligence to my students at University of Bristol. And then that led me to go to Carnegie Mellon University for a year. And I did um, uh, for my final master's year. And I joined uh, Manuela Veloso's RoboCup team, so playing robot football. And at that time, they were leagues with robot dogs, the Sony Ibos. Uh, and it just got me so excited about this idea of making robots work together. You know, we'd go to the, and I, as part of our team, I went to the U.S. Championship, uh, which which the team won. And you would literally jump up and cry when these <laughs> these robot dogs would score a goal. And so I went back to Switzerland to Dario's lab with the goal of making robots work together. Uh, and so that's really what got me into this this area of swarm robotics. Uh, and at that time, I was doing swarms of flying robots to create communication networks in things like disaster scenarios uh, and trying to find the algorithms to make these robots coordinate, even though they weren't meant to have GPS. And so they needed to be quite creative about their solutions. Uh, and then I thought, you know, that's 10 robots and we keep going on and on about these, these larger swarms that you see in nature. And we just weren't developing that on the robotic side. So I looked for another robot platform and I spent three years uh, in a lab that made nanoparticles for cancer treatment uh, with Sangeeta Bhatia over at MIT. And that sort of was the bridge between the scales and starting to see things a little bit differently. Uh, and I was also lucky to, to go to Radhika Nagpal's lab every, every week over at the Wies Institute at Harvard just for a robot fix because I was embedding <laughs> myself in the nano and biomedical world and I needed to get back to the things that I knew. Sometimes that's a healthy thing to do. And she was developing this kilobot swarm, which was this 1,024 robot platform. So it's called a kilobot because instead of a kilobit, it's a kilobot. Um, and it just made so much sense that we had these nanoparticles and huge numbers, limited capabilities. Radhika was developing the hardware to be able to do some of these experiments with large numbers of robots uh, and sort of taking the legacy of what I'd done with smaller numbers, but more capable robots and seeing how we could bridge these different worlds and build a tool suite that could help us address uh, some of these questions of more generally, how do you engineer a swarm across scales? Uh, so that's really how I got about it. People wonder if I've jumped to different fields, but actually I feel like this swarm engineering is the thing that ties it all together. And ultimately these are different agents uh, with different applications, but the same mission of swarm level uh, intelligence. So Albert Cow, one of the postdocs here who studies collective behavior, a lot of what you're saying here reminds me of a paper that he collaborated on recently that showed that there are instances where you actually don't want the agents in a network to be that smart, that the collective intelligence starts to break down. If the memory of an agent is too long, if it's not like adaptable. And of course, you know, you, you listen to research like this and at least two things come up for me. One is what does this tell us about human collective intelligence and humans 
behavior and human society and the way that we structure things. And then another is, in what ways does it not tell us anything? In what ways does behavior at a given scale, you know, really only have import to other phenomena at that scale? And and so I'm curious, like, how, how far you're, you are comfortable drawing inferences from this kind of research into other domains, you know, wh- where you see this work applying in ways that it wasn't originally intended and, and where you think that people are trying to stretch the metaphor. It's hard not to anthropomorphize these swarms. So, for example, the decision-making, you see them turn red and blue and you're rooting that they're all going to go to the, the right side of the force. And my students are always, you know, claiming that they're deciding football matches or, or doing who knows what. So you do see these self-organized systems and you've seen something natural about it. Or, for example, our shape formation as you grow these limb-like structures you just can't help but see in an organism uh, as it develops. So it's, it's true that because we see that, we tend to say, oh, maybe this could help us understand something about how humans make decisions about elections or whatnot. Uh, I think they can be good proxies to at least play with ideas. And because we can easily program them with simple sets of rules and visualize the dynamics on, on a hardware platform, sometimes that helps open the mind. And you see things you might not necessarily see in simulation or in these less controllable systems but nature, humans, and such are way more complex than the things that we're putting in our robots. So I do think we need to be careful in assuming these are good models of these different systems. It's also true that while I keep talking about swarming across scale, some of the algorithms that we do in small numbers of robots, actually most of them would break down if we did them uh, with huge numbers of robots, which is actually contradictory to what we usually say in swarming, which is that swarms because they're decentralized, they're scalable to huge numbers, they're robust to individual failure. But actually, many of the algorithms that we've been designing for those small numbers actually do rely on those small numbers working reasonably well. So you can assume that if if you put 100 robots and maybe a portion of them misbehave or do something poorly because they're just not working, that will skew the swarm behavior as a whole. So they might be coming to, to a decision that wasn't necessarily the one that they were meant to do. And so we need to do a more careful consideration of how you engineer these swarms in a way that makes them robust and reliable. Uh, so that the swarm engineering across scales and getting features for free only works if you've really tested it across those different scales and you've learned something about that system. I actually think that the things that are inspired from the nano micro world are more robust in huge numbers simply because we're making so fewer assumptions about their capabilities that there's less breakdown points on which you can you can fall. Yeah, you know, listening to that brings up a lot about you know, the study of the evolution of human civilization gets to that issue of, you know, how do we manage ourselves at scale? You know, we need a different algorithm for relating to people to just sort of throw random things in here. That's the whole thing with the blockchain thing, right, is an attempt to scale trust in, a, you know, trustless environments. So I'm curious, given all of that about the advent of multicellularity in these robot swarms and like tissue differentiation, because it seems like the theme across all of these different systems and substrates is that you reach a certain swarm size and then the swarm actually benefits from differentiating within itself. Do you see work being done on that? So that there is a lot of work on, on hom- homogeneous swarms, so swarms yeah. that have the same program. But even though they have the same program, the environment they're in is going to drive their behavior. So you could get 
different behaviors of the individual robots based on their location and what they're sensing. So with, with the morphogenesis work that we've done with James Sharp over at the CRG, you, you essentially generate um, chemical fields uh, based on two virtual morphogens that give you Turing-like spots or stripes, depending on how you set those patterns. Uh, and then that allows you to grow these limb structures. So it can be seen a little bit like differentiation, even though the code for all those robots is exactly the same, just like the code for all our cells is exactly the same. Uh, so it's quite interesting to see how from a homogeneous swarm, you get something uh, that is quite specialized on a local scale and is able to do, to do its function. Also interesting is uh, when you go to huge numbers of robots, if you want to make them robust, there's really two different strategies. Either they're so simple that it's just reaction diffusion and if individuals fail, that doesn't really matter because the other ones are just going to continue moving randomly and reacting to their neighbors. Uh, so you somehow make that system robust by making the individuals so dumb uh, that there's not much much to to attack. The other side is is you have more sophisticated behaviors, and then you need to introduce some sort of artificial immune system, uh, which actually makes sense. If you look at the evolution of multicellular systems, at some point we had to come up with an immune system to be able to weed out bad actors so that we could continue maintaining these complex systems. Uh, and so in that case, you need to actively have a system that allows you to see what your peers uh, or other robots are doing so that you can detect if there are any actors that are uh, breaking down or not working because those could fundamentally um, alter uh, the intended behavior of your swarm as a whole. So I think it's a, it's a really good time right now to start studying these questions of how you make these systems robust uh, and what you need to introduce maybe in terms of, of artificial immune system or checking uh, so that you can have that, have that work. Uh, but likewise, it could be that we design the swarm rules in such a way that they're safe by design and individually you're, you're limiting uh, the ways in which that system could fail. Yeah, to, to take a turn into my own, you know, dark mind on this stuff. I was thinking about this last night when one of the, the audience members brought up military applications and was interested. You know, I think a lot of people, at least in the general public, are interested in that and not on one side of that conversation necessarily the other, but just interested. And it occurred to me that, you know, were I DARPA, there's really two different programs here in, in a way that there are like we were just talking about, you know, two different approaches depending on how finely grained your your methods are. One of them is to actually build your own swarm of intelligent actors, and then another is to figure out how to co-opt another swarm. And so I'm I'm curious about this in terms of, you know, thinking about it in in the language of like infection or invasion. Do it seems as though if the swarm is dumb enough, you can't really hack it, right? Like that, that you can't actually co-opt a nanomedical swarm because we're talking about very dumb, random behavior. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, how do you imagine something like a uh, cognitive regime change happening in a sufficiently intelligent swarm? What do you mean by cognitive, re well, cognitive like, regime change? You know, there's there's so much research being done here and, you know, by the people that pass through this campus on, for example, can we halt a seizure or can we can we change a pattern of brain activity? Are there points where we have extraordinary influence on this network? What kind of research is being done on influencing the swarm that has already been designed? You know, that's already like influencing these emergent behaviors. 
Yes. Yeah, so, so first of all, on the military side, I think we need to be mindful of what we create. Uh, and there's many good civil applications of these technologies, whether it's the biomedical applications, the search and rescue, the ability to use this to sense the environment or pollutants uh, or whatnot. But we also need to be wary of applications which aren't the ones that we're intending to design. And so I think that's something that we need to be honest about and make sure that we're, that we're mindful of that as we develop these technologies. In terms of making sure the system is robust or being able to control a system, a swarm system, we're looking at research right now that aims to send in a couple of robots into a swarm. And that swarm could be a biological swarm, say mosquitoes or a flock of birds that's not going in a good direction and might hit a wind farm. And so the idea is that these artificial agents that we've programmed could go in, sample the reaction of the agents to its presence, and then extract the swarm rules from those interactions. So rather than having a laboratory setting where you have a godly view of what your swarm is doing, because you can monitor what every agent is doing, you would send in one or two or three agents, have them sample, and then extract this swarm model from that. And the reason it's interesting to do that is once you've extracted that swarm model from a swarm system that you haven't designed, then you would be able to potentially control it. So one example that we've been working on with Martin Homer is flocking. So that's a simple case where you could send in an agent, have them sample the behavior of other flockers, uh, extract, for example, the repulsion radius, and then using that information just by driving a couple robots that know where to go, you're essentially pulling the flock as a whole. So there's definitely ways in which you can skew the behavior of a swarm if you know how that uh, swarm operates. And that might be useful if a swarm is misbehaving and you want to just be able to send a couple agents in uh, to be able to push that swarm elsewhere. It could be useful in the case of understanding and monitoring animal populations um, and being able to, to push them in the right direction. Uh, that works for a limited subset, and we're just starting to explore this, uh, where you sort of have an idea of what the rules are. Uh, not necessarily for, for, for things that are more complex than that. Yeah, listening to this, it makes me just freewheel into questions like, could you inject spy robots into the construction crew of someone else's house and, like, alter the building plan of, you know, like, are there new forms of graffiti and, like, subterfuge that come out? Of course there are. You know, I have a student who's, I mean, just on the more creative side, I think we need to be, people go straight to the, what if we hack it in the swarm to something awful, because that is ultimately what science fiction tells us. And uh, it was part of the Royal Society's working group on machine learning that did a public survey of the, the perception of machine learning. And very few people knew of the term machine learning, something like 10%. And then uh, what was interesting is they knew of applications of it. So they knew about the fact that you could talk to your phone and it would answer back, so natural language processing. They knew about autonomous cars, and they learned from it mostly from mainstream media and science fiction. So I can name so many shows that have swarms gone wrong, whether it's, you know, Black Mirror, Love, Death, and Robots recently. Although, you know, Black Mirror was so annoying because they had this entire, they called it the autonomous insects, mm -hmm. but they were all controlled from that, like, central Jurassic Park computer we, we wrote a whole takedown of, of, of that episode. But, you know, I love science fiction. I really do. Uh, and it's interesting. But I think we need to think really creatively about these swarms and the really good things they can do simply because instead of having one robot that's limited, we have many robots that could do things that we simply can't do, like cover a large area, typically. So on the artistic side, since you brought up graffiti, 
Uh, I had a student with Paulo Dowd uh, who's looking at how we can use these robot swarms as material that we could sculpt. So can you develop a cool human swarm interaction where you're moving your arms in interesting ways and that guides these materials, which are built of robots, to form different shapes? And I think it's really fun to think, the, think of these as new materials, new substrates that we can start to sculpt and model based on something that's maybe more artistic and funner. So maybe maybe a robot that goes in and does graffiti is not a bad idea. Well, you know, I've, I've definitely read science fiction like uh, Charles Strauss's Accelerando, where swarms are deployed for evolutionary housing where the, the building itself changes its architecture in response to your, the needs of the moment where, you know, you want to sit down and so the room exudes a chair. So like, is this, is this the kind of heady futuristic space that you fantasize into? I mean, there's been projects on that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where EPFL had a cool project about uh, robot furniture that could self-assemble into, into usable functional shapes. Our work in Morphogenesis with James Sharp that looks at growing these shapes in a fully self-organized way, uh, right now they're very organic looking, and so they don't seem that functional, but actually the follow-on projects that Daniel's doing uh, is looking to make them more functional. Uh, a little bit like slime molds that, you know, from this amorphous blob can, can explore an environment and, and connect the nearest points and do all these interesting computations. Uh, and so I, I, I do like the idea of having swarms that adapt to the need in an environment. Uh, and there's a lot of work in modular robotics as well that have had that as a principle. You know, could you have a robot that self-assembles into a walking robot if it needs to climb over something and a rolling robot if it needs to do something different? So these, these ideas have been there. Uh, what's interesting with the large numbers is all of a sudden you have critical mass to actually start building shapes that are a bit more functional potentially. So um, James came to us because he had a smaller swarm, and so you couldn't see the full beauty of this morphogenesis in action. You fundamentally need those large numbers uh, when you're using these algorithms. And so I love the idea of things like self-forming shape, depending on needs. Okay, so you've been a podcaster yourself for like 10 years, you said, right? You know, at RoboHub, which I highly recommend to people who want to understand science communication done well. You've interviewed, I don't even know, countless engineers and researchers. This is sort of an A and a B. Back to the question I asked you at the beginning. What are some of the most inspiring projects in terms of their, their potential implications that you see going on out of all of that? And obviously, you're going to leave a ton of amazing stuff out, but whatever comes to mind. And then what aren't you seeing? What are the areas of robotics research... Or, or research more generally into swarm behavior and swarm intelligence, where do you feel like there are blank spots on that map? So the, the RoboHub team is a very big team, and actually Adro Nash and his team now are doing a lot of the, the most recent interviews. Uh, but it is mind-opening to speak to so many people in the field. And uh, I love everything. <laughs> it's very hard to choose. But what I'm excited about really is, is robots that are getting into the real world. Because I think one of the challenges that we face in public perception is that we keep talking about robots. But actually, in all my discussions that I have with the public, when I ask them who has a robot at work, who has a robot at home, no one has one or very few might, might have a Roomba or something like that. And so we need to change that. So actually, the discussions I like most are the startups that are making real robots that are getting out into the real world. And I think we need to be we need to be seeing more of that. Uh, so when you say what's missing, it's actually seeing more of that. It's seeing these robots that are being deployed and used by people. The other thing that we're missing is, you know, after after 10 years of doing science communication, 
where we're saying that the experts need to you know, tell their story and explain more about what the work they're doing is I realized we need to do the opposite and actually listen way more to the public. So right now, all, all my new PhD students start their project by doing use case studies, which I'm learning how to do as well because I'm not a social scientist. Currently, we're running with use case studies with firefighters, with warehouse workers, as well as inspection experts for bridges. And just asking them, you know, what's your job? What do you care about? Where would you need help? What do you think of robots? What do you think of robot swarms? And I found that these use case studies are just so mind-opening. First of all, because when you're concrete, it's no longer the realm of science fiction. You're not talking about Terminator. You're talking about, you know, I walk over this bridge and I'm trying to detect a crack and this is how I do it. And this is where a robot would be useful. Um, they're actually super open-minded to technology. For example, firefighters often their media person will know how to use a drone. So they've already had uh, that, that type of interface to robotics. And, and they genuinely see an area where their expertise is important. That's what they value themselves as. And they, they see an area that really they couldn't care less about stacking boxes um, in the back of their charity shop, for example. Uh, and so I think we need to be doing that actually way more so that we're developing the technology that doesn't have a backlash uh, and something that we can deploy in the real world that is useful for people. So that it's funny because after 10 years of science communication, you'd think I'd have known that. But actually, it's, it's this work with the Royal Society that just made me realize how it's done and how it should be done. So that's what I want to see more of. You know, in a way that seems to be itself an instance of a biomimetic approach to design where you have more than one direction of information flow, where you're drawing on the collective intelligence of communities. Let's tie a bow on this here. But it seems like all this looking to the natural world for inspiration in the design of technology is bringing us to a point where it's getting harder to actually draw the line between the living and the non-living. What are your thoughts on the robotic or, you know, the technological in its relationship to the biological? Our wet lab on the nanobiomedical side is in the synthetic biology lab. And it's really interesting to see the interface between the engineering approach and living systems. And I think there's definitely, just like we're doing swarming across scales, I think we can think of controllability of agents across scales as well. Um, and to design these systems as a whole, whether they interface natural systems or artificial systems. Uh, again, this idea of swarm-level intelligence and how you implement that at the individual level. And those individuals could be a mix of real cells. They could be a mix of microparticles. Um, they could be a mix of an external observer that's trying to, to interface with that swarm. Uh, so we, we need to think of the system. And, and the building blocks of that system, I think, could really be broad. Well, awesome. Sabine, it's been a pleasure to be a dumb node in a smart network with you for the last 40 minutes. Uh, that, that was a very smart conversation, so thank you. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Where where will we send people to follow up on learning about your work? You can check out the howardlab.com and RoboHub if they're interested in robotics more broadly. Excellent. Thank you. System Science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast. Luis, 